Good morning. Um, This morning, if you would like to follow along, we are going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. We are in chapter 3. It will be on the screen if you would like to follow along up there. We are reading verses 1 through 15. There is occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing, a time to search and a time to count as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his struggles? I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in his time. He has also put eternity in, the heart, in their hearts, but no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all of his efforts. I know that everything God does will last forever, and there is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. Whatever is has already been, and whatever will be already is. However, God seeks justice for the persecuted. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stacy. Yeah, Jeff, you really got to get to know her. She's great. I really have enjoyed my time to to know Stacy. Um, in part two of our series, we are dealing with the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week we began this series. Um, with the reminder that the Bible teaches not just in one place, not just in Proverbs 1, uh, 1, 7 and in chapter 9, verse 10. It's a repeated phrase. It's actually found in almost every genre of the Bible. And the statement goes like this. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Or the fear of the Lord is that place in which wisdom begins. It finds root. It develops. It, it nourishes um, and, and that's kind of what we, we dealt with last week, which talked about um, con- consistently the importance that we understand who God is and, and that we recognize that his greatness and his power is not just something to be feared in judgment, but in fact, he is so amazing and so incredible that even those of us who no longer fear judgment because we have reconciliation through Jesus Christ... We are still in awe of him. I'm grateful for the prophet Jeremiah who reminded us of the words from the Lord that said, and they will, they will, they will be afraid, they will tremble when they think about just how much I love them. Wow. Like this is the greatness of our God and, and therefore it's good for us to know who he is. And then the Bible actually teaches that in Jesus we actually have a perfect expression of who God is. Jesus is asked by his disciples near the end of his life, they, they say to him, show us the Father. Like, make the Father known to us. And you remember how Jesus responds? If you've seen me, 
You've seen the Father. So if you, if you know how I act and how I am responding, I want you to know that everything I do is the will of the Father. I'm here to, 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 to ultimately to bring about his, his purposes. That's what I'm here to do. That's how I'm here to serve. I'm, I'm not, Jesus teaches, a counterbalance to God. I am an expression, the greatest expression of who he is, God in flesh. That's what the Bible teaches. So I guess it makes sense that a number of years ago, and I, actually I didn't even have time to chase this, but do you guys remember WWJD? And I don't mean like the t-shirts or the sweatshirts or the wristbands or the chocolate bars or whatever. They had literally, they marketed that like crazy. I don't mean that. I mean, do you remember thinking through at a time in your life, I was probably in high school, I would guess, where I heard that. And the first time I heard it, I thought, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I see that. I don't know if I've heard it before, but yeah, I guess I should ask that question. The question that we are to ask ourselves as we are walking through life is, what would Jesus do? In this particular instance, in the circumstances that I find myself in, what would Jesus do right now as a 16-year-old boy in Canada trying to figure out how to manage his time in high school? I'm supposed to be walking through the hallways of Lindsay Thurber Comprehensive High School. We just called it the comp. I'm supposed to ask myself, interacting, what would Jesus do as he's walking into this math class? What would Jesus do as he's having conversations with his friends? What would Jesus do when he's invited to go to a party on Friday night? What would Jesus do? And I get the exercise. I understand its intention. How many of you, not because you didn't want to do what Jesus would do, but how many of you, and you're trying to deal with some of these things, I don't even know what Jesus would do. Like, it is a little complicated. I've actually even heard people, they, they say things like this, and I know where they're coming from. They say, you know, I guess the most spiritual thing I should do, i.e. what Jesus would do right now, is just sit at home and read my Bible, but I gotta go to work. That's how they talk. I know what Jesus would do, and then they create some kind of a spiritual expression, and, and then they default to just what, you know, what, what they gotta do as a regular person. Like, I know what Jesus would do, you know, become a youth pastor and save all the young children from all of their mistakes, but you know what? I mean, I just, I don't have that, and so I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna do whatever they're gonna do. And, and that's, they, they seem to think that the answer to what Jesus would do in these instances is kind of beyond them. And in a way, maybe it is. But I like to be reminded, um, even for those people who say, well, we should act like Jesus acts in this situation. What I love about the Gospels <laughs> is sometimes he says some of the most culturally today inappropriate things. And I would even say maybe even inappropriate back then. Like Jesus surprises his audience many times when a woman is chasing after him and chasing after him that he might go and heal her daughter. And Jesus lets her know in pretty clear terms, I've not come to help people that are not of Israel. I've come to the house of Israel. That's what he says to her. Now ultimately, we know that his plan is for the redemption of all, but he says this to her. But he doesn't just say, hey, by the way, please be patient with me. We have a long-term plan. He literally says, you do know that it's wrong for, for people to give food that it belongs to the children and just give it to dogs. Did you just say that to her? 
Didn't expect that one. And what's interesting is, and this is the sovereignty that we see in Jesus, why I don't recommend we always act like that. This is the complexity of what would Jesus do. Just because he would do it doesn't mean you should do it. Just because Jesus acted a particular way, flipping over tables in the temple, doesn't necessarily give you or I the right to act in such a way. But Jesus knows this woman. She then responds back, yeah, I understand what you're saying. That is very, very true. She understands, as a Syrophoenician, she understands her place within God's plan. She says to him, but the dog eats the crumbs that fall to the floor. And that's all I'm asking she shows a profound sense of humility, which is so lacking in us. And Jesus grants her request. And then he does more. He literally says, can you amaze God? Wow, Jesus says. I don't, I don't see this kind of faith in Israel. That's the indictment. And what's interesting is, is that, that, that kind of what would Jesus do in this instance, and there's more than just that one. There, there are times that I think it's predictable. And then there are other times the depth of who God is and the breadth of his plan is so wide and it is so deep that it causes me to reflect. It causes me to tremble. And so as, as helpful as the WWJD movement was, I don't know if it really helped. This probably belongs in a much bigger sermon, but the one final point I want to make about that is this. There is actually something fundamentally wrong with the idea of believing that in the moment, just in the moment, that that 16-year-old boy in a, Sunday, or in, a, in, a, in a high school classroom or a 38-year-old boy who is now trying to figure out what to do in a complicated work situation can just make that kind of decision on the spot. No, what's needed is a lifetime of, of character and a lifetime of both information, but then the working out of that information in action so that there is a transformation that takes place. Dallas Willard speaks about this in his book on the spirit of the disciplines. And I love his example. What makes a great athlete is not that in each and every moment they try to make the shot or they try to turn the play. That's not what makes them great. It's not that in that moment they try, WWJD. But it is that in all of the other moments of life, they are training. And he says the spiritual life is no different. Therefore, to put yourself in difficult situations and then go, I can figure this out, I would argue all of us will find circumstances and times where not only do we not know what the right thing is, but even if we did, we would not have the character to be able to do it. In walks wisdom. Wisdom is pictured in the Bible as someone, usually a woman, that is calling out. I'm here to help you. I want to instruct you. Will you listen to me? Can I help you? It's, it's, I love the pictures that we see, particularly in Proverbs. It's, it reminds me a lot of my mom, who, who wasn't the kind of um, 
You know, my dad always had things for me to do and things for me to think about, right? So it was that kind of instruction. And there is wisdom in that. But my mom, a lot of her actions and a lot of her words were not readily discernible or even audible. And, and wisdom can be like that. Instead of WWJD, maybe it's WDWS. What does wisdom say? As wisdom calls out, as wisdom invites in, as wisdom consistently speaks and waits for us to respond, and then if we respond and begin to grow in wisdom, then there's more to learn. And if not, this is what happens. If not, then in the end, I think for the majority, so hear me, I'm trying to use an analogy. I think what happens is, is if we're not going to take that instruction, the next level of instruction really doesn't matter. Like if you're not going to do that, if you're not going to follow that basic level of instruction, fear the Lord, then I would tell you that no matter what comes next, doesn't matter if you don't fear the Lord. If you don't fear the Lord, but you want to add to yourself, I don't know, some really helpful life tips, You've not learned humility. You've not learned, you've not learned like the goodness of God. You've not understood the spirit of God. Like you don't know those things. And so wisdom keeps waiting. And when you've learned to fear the Lord, come back. I have more for you to build upon. And therefore what wisdom does, and I think this is Jesus likes this statement, he basically, when they are doubting what he's doing and they're confused by what he's doing, he offers this kind of level of instruction. Time will make this known. Stay with me. Time will make it known. Wisdom will be proved right by her children, he says. Oh, the wisdom of Christ. In our text today, here is basically what we have, Ecclesiastes chapter three. We're gonna be mostly there. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse one. Here is what it says. We all know this. This is one of my favorite funeral texts. Here's what it says. There is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven. Don't just think that that's Old Testament stuff and the New Testament changes that. No, the New Testament embraces that. Essentially, that yes, there is an occasion for everything and there is a time for everything. Now, by the way, what this is not is relativism. Right, you know what relativism is? Which basically says, hey, tell you what, you can choose to do what you wanna do and it's right for you. And I'm gonna do something completely different, even the opposite, and that's right for me. So this is you, this is me, and you do what you wanna do, and I'll do what I wanna do, and we can selectively choose. That's what relativism is. It is one of the, um, the pillars of our modern times, looking at truth. Although I, I, I do find it fascinating that right now, in such a world where misinformation becomes something that is just terrible, it's fascinating to just watch that wisdom is proved right by her children to keep preaching your truth, my truth, your truth, my truth. Now all of a sudden, what's the truth? And, and people are truly losing their minds, all of them. 
See, it's not relativism. You get to choose and I get to choose. That's not what Ecclesiastes is teaching. By the way, it's not even what I'll refer to as Christian relativism. Because there's the kind of relativism that just says, yeah, everything is open for game. You can decide, I can decide. You do what you want, I do what I want. And there's many of us who are Christians that go, yeah, listen, that's, that that's, doesn't make sense. That, that literally is a terrible way to think. And then they make a Christian version of it. Which is, hey, as Christians, you do what you want to do and I'm going to do what I want to do. I mean, it's, except for a few, you know, the, the blatantly obvious sins, you and I walk around, I think, in this fog of Christian relativism, semi to completely detached from one another and allowing each other to make choices and to deal with our struggles and we don't usually comment on things, we don't talk about things, we don't engage things. There is a Christian version of relativism. When we read the text and become incredibly frustrated, wish the Bible was clearer. Or, or many of us purposefully almost want to fog it up. You know, that's the beauty about being a Christian. So many different ways of doing it, even contradictory ones. What? Listen, I'm not saying that the solution is easy. But what the Bible is describing here is not our own form of Christian relativism. Yeah, let's avoid the big sins, but everything else, whatever. That's the, if, if relativism is the God of our age, Christian relativism is our understanding of God in this age. And I think the Bible is clearer than that. It just is. It's also not what can look at this text. It's not nihilism. Sorry for the philosophy lesson. I promise I'll make it quick. Do you guys know what nihilism is? It's, it's, it's kind of this getting to the end of it and realizing it, it actually stems from the fact that we can't know things. We can't ultimately know things. And instead of realizing that even though we can't ultimately know them, we can kind of know them. And then it leads to this kind of meaninglessness. Right? Like, I, I get it, how you could almost read this text. There's a, a time to kill and a time to heal. Whatever. It doesn't matter. There's a time to, to laugh and a time to cry. You're right. Groundhog Day. Remember Groundhog Day? You know the movie? Not the, not the it's not even a holiday. Not, not the, a day, but the, the movie. It's fascinating. He just kind of moves through all of the normal expressions when we realize I'm just going to wake up and do this again. You know what it is. It's called Monday. I'm just going to wake this up, wake up and do this again. Nihilism. What's the point? And you don't have to know the movie to get this from the from the text, but in the movie he goes from trying to make the most of life to trying to change life to just giving up on life because nothing he does matters. And there is philosophical worldly nihilism and it leads to despair and hopelessness don't read ecclesiastes and don't read ecclesiastes 3 like somehow what the what, what the preacher is saying what what solomon is writing is nothing matters even as he describes life as meaningless that's a complicated word the word is hevel it means breath which is an important part of life. But what is important in life is not breath, 
It's breathing. So life isn't pointless. It's not. It finds its meaning in its creator. So nihilism is wrong, but by the way, we're good at doing this as Christians. There is Christian nihilism. It's not that nothing matters, there's no point. No, there's a point, but since God's got it, what's the point? What's the point? How many of you have wondered, what's the point of praying? God's gonna do what God's gonna do. Sometimes you say that because you're thinking deeply. Other times you're saying that because you're mad. Because it doesn't seem to matter what you pray. You didn't get what you wanted. I sound like, sometimes with God, like I would with my parents. Well, I don't even think I should ask you because I know you're gonna say no. Which was brilliant when I was 10. But when I was 36 and my 10-year-old was saying that to me, I thought he was the dumbest person in the world. No, that's not true. The most selfish. There is Christian nihilism I don't think it matters. And by the way, if you haven't like, like in, intentionally got to that point, I, I would argue there is a, a level of the working out of our salvation, meaning the way that we live with one another, that indicts us for believing some of these things even though we haven't philosophically or intellectually worked through, working them through. We are functionally acting as though it doesn't matter. It matters. Wisdom matters. It's tough, but wisdom matters. Look at verse nine of our text, which is the response to this. And I love, what I love about that text is it surprises us in those first eight verses. There's a time to kill. There's a, there's a time to be silent. There is, um, there's a time to hate. There, there's a Are you willing to do the hard work of discerning how to live? How to live in light of a very broken and complicated world under a completely sovereign and gracious and good and righteous who is one day going to be the judge of all things, God. And so Solomon asks in verse nine, what does a worker gain from his struggles? And by the way, the answer isn't nothing, <laughs> right? It's not the spoiled child. It doesn't matter, I quit. That's not what he, that's not what he gets to. What's interesting in this text, in, in what I would argue is kind of the, the follow-up section, verses nine through 15, it's not just, there's a time for, go figure it out. Solomon doesn't leave us there. Solomon doesn't leave us with this, you go figure it out, it's random, it doesn't make sense. No, Solomon asks the question, what does a worker gain from all of his struggles? And the answer isn't nothing, and the answer isn't he can figure it out and control his destiny. The answer is somewhere in the middle, Forrest. Gump. If you remember at the end of that movie, he's trying to figure out, is life random or does it have purpose? Here's what he says, maybe it's a little bit of both. But even in its randomness, what Ecclesiastes teaches us and what the Bible speaks about is that life is not random. 
It serves God's purpose or God's purposes. So the life that you are going through, the circumstances that you are experiencing, the choices that you need to make, learning then from those choices and getting another day to wake up and to do it again is all under God's care. It is all under his plan. It is all under his good plan. And therefore, we engage it in such a way. Look at what Ecclesiastes 3 verse 10 says. I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. It's interesting that what you see in the garden, and this is what I think the writer of Ecclesiastes is getting to, what you actually see in the garden is Adam and Eve being given the instruction, follow me, listen to me. Enjoy the world that I have given you, and you can do everything, but here's the one thing you cannot do. You cannot live life on your own without me. You must listen to me. You must know that I know better for you than what you think you know is better for you. So you need to obey me and understand like who I am and tremble. I think there's a trembling that existed with Adam and Eve that was not based on judgment. It was just based on magnitude of God. I want you to know me and to fear me so that when I tell you something, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day in which you eat of it, you will die. Fear me. They didn't know what sin was. And I guess they didn't fear him. What's it gonna hurt? I don't see any problem with this. Do you? No. And the snake's with us. That's three. And then after the sin enters in, what's, what's really interesting is what God does in his judgment is not just blind or random. It's not just, you didn't listen to me and so I'm going to choose a punishment for you to show you how bad you are. You know what he does? Go back and take a look at the text. He frustrates them. You want to try to live without me? You want to try to just believe that the words that I give you, that they have no value or they have no purpose? You want to treat them as suggestions, but not like words to live and die upon? Then the world around you is not going to be your oyster, or if it is, you're going to have to pry it open to get the pearl. He doesn't make life miserable. He, he makes life in such a way that they are going to learn by his grace, dependence. And that's what's happening. That's what it's describing here. I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. And the task that we have that keeps us occupied is called life. And it is good and it is bad and it is hard. Um, Eve learns that not only giving birth but raising children is a joyful pain. Is, is a very, very difficult life-giving and life-breathing exercise. That I will, I will have more tears of joy and sadness as I raise these little image bearers of the Creator. And Adam is going to learn that as provider, protector, 
that the world is now no longer going to just be a garden that he can cultivate, but there are going to be things in that garden, in this world, that are going to work against what he is doing. Easily one of the most difficult things I've ever had to experience in my life is all the time that I am investing in something and it just seems like there's more going, I'm not even talking about money, but by the way, it's similar to that. All the things that I am putting in, all the things that I am doing, it seems like it's just leaking. And that's true in the garden, but it's actually true in relationships, it's true in the workspace, it's true everywhere. And every time Adam tries to protect or every time Adam tries to provide, there's always a thief and a liar and a deceiver. Enemies on every side. So life is not random. What we learn from Ecclesiastes with kind of a singularity of statement is this, life is deep. And and by the way, I think as followers of Jesus Christ, we really need to embrace this. Do you wanna know why so many people give up on their faith when they go to college? It's because the faith when they stepped into the baptistry, rightly so at the age of nine, never really changed from nine to 18. It was all the same stuff very loosely, never clearly articulated ideas about what would Jesus do, but you never actually followed up with what that could look like and the complexities of what that could look like. That in the end, the prayers that they gave at you know, 18 are very similar to the prayers that they gave at five. God, thank you for this wonderful day. Let nobody die. Let all of the money in the world come into our house and may we have a happy day. Great four-year-old prayer. Not a very good 18-year-old prayer. And the children didn't even have a chance to learn like wisdom or even how to pray from a mother or father that taught them. Moms and dads, one of the most incredible things you can do to teach your children wisdom is to grow up in your prayers and to allow your children to hear what matters most to you as you speak to God. And in your prayers, may your children learn that life is deep, that our faith is deeper still, that life is hard, but our faith has greater resolve and intentionality to it. And that's what Solomon is getting at here. Life is deep. And therefore, the depth of life is going to teach us to rely on God. Look at verse 11. He, that's God, has made everything appropriate in its time. Which means that what, what, what was done with, many of, uh, with, with a lot of Christian preaching and Christian teaching, and maybe since the very beginning, but especially in the last few hundred years, is to kind of create like a Disney version of faith for everybody. A very simplistic version of faith. And I really believe that a lot of the, 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 the fracturing or the breaking of that is it never really dealt with the complexity of life. That's why I love to go back to this wonderful book because this wonderful book is so real and honest and ugly and redemptive. It's like a life of real forgiveness, of real engagement with real problems. And, and, and what we did was, and I, I, know, I think I know why we did it, but what we tried to do 
in a kind of an, in a Victorianism kind of a way is to just kind of clean up the surface. And we never really dealt with the hard issues. We never really dealt with wisdom. And wisdom is calling out, fear God. And we're saying, no, we're going to clean up the outside of our lives so you don't have to worry about them. You're going to think you're such a good person by the things that you do, you don't have to worry about them. Instead of dealing with the complicated brokenness in our relationships and in our marriages and with our children and in in our past, that the Bible is more than capable to give us words of wisdom and hope and peace and truth. The depth of life teaches us to rely on him. Verse 11, he has made everything appropriate in its time. Deal with that. He has also put eternity in their hearts. But no one can discover the work of God has done from beginning to end. Most time when we use this text and God has put eternity in their hearts, we kind of go to Romans 1. God has put eternity in their hearts and we just kind of, without looking at it in its context, we go, yeah, that's so true. Everybody should just reflect that there's more to this life than just this life. That's true, but that's not what this text is saying. What this text is saying is God has made everything appropriate in its time and you need to learn wisdom to know how to respond to life. And he put eternity in their hearts. Literally, it's the same thing of what he's doing in terms of the world is that there is this amazing depth in terms of who God is that will remind them all of life, all of your circumstances is greater than you and bigger than you. It it literally is looking at the, the, the depths of this world and being humbled and just saying, wow, isn't God amazing that he can continue to deal with these circumstances and the brokenness of life He can deal with humanity at its very, very worst, and you and I might consider his very, very best. And God is sovereign over all things. Um, In a very short period of time, I'll be standing in Israel, one of my, or in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, and one of my favorite things to do is to look over that land and to realize, you know, if I was running this place, and by the way, I don't mean like a Jewish political leader, I mean God, there's certain things I would just take care of. And God reminds me all the time, I know you would, and you're wrong. Trust me in this. Well, God, I don't know why you don't. Anybody else have one of those? Ecclesiastes 3 says, because he's working it out in his time, not yours. Yeah, well, I just don't like it. I'm sure you don't. I don't. The depth of life teaches us to rely on him. Therefore, the depth of life leads us to fear God. Look at verse 314. I didn't, by the way, have this planned when I put these first two sermons back to back. I know that everything God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. You'll never guess what the word awe means. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, it's used twice. Do not be in awe of me, for I have come to demonstrate the greatness of who I am so that you will awe me. By the way, in our translation, it says fear. God has worked all of these things, even the complexities of life and the depth of our circumstances, so that we would fear him, so that we would learn from him, 
that we would humble ourselves and realize, wow, so I don't just, I don't just give up on everybody? That's right, I'm not gonna give up on anybody. Oh, I have to give up on some people? Well, how do I know? Gain wisdom. Why do you think that that's why in the, Old, in the New Testament, James says, for those of you who lack wisdom, try harder. Give up, because you can't do it. Remember what it said, what does it say? Pray. If you lack wisdom, pray. Get on your knees and ask God for discernment. So the depth of life teaches us to rely on him. The depth of life teaches us to fear him so that we would learn from him. The depth of life is only enjoyed in relation to God is how this particular text ends. This is why I don't believe in Christian nihilism. What I love about Ecclesiastes, and I think Jesus offers very similar, Paul does. Look at verses 12 and 13 of our text. For I know that there is nothing better for them, these people who are occupied with life and the complexities of life, it says this, there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. This is also a gift of God when anyone eats and drinks and enjoys all of his efforts. What? Yes. This is what the words of wisdom offer us. Like, do you know that God is in control so you don't have to be anxious and miss out? Do you know that God is in control and so all the injustices that you thought you could fix that now you realize you can't fix, you don't have to quit on life, you have to trust him. And you know what you can do? Because there's gonna be another pandemic. I don't know when, by the way. And there's gonna be an earthquake and there's gonna be a tornado. What are we gonna do? I don't know, I'm having lunch. Um, I'm going to bed tonight around 9.30, 10. I'm gonna do everything that I can and then at the end of it, I'll occupy myself with a lot of things and I'll try to gain wisdom and understanding and then everything that is beyond my purview, that is beyond my ability to control, you know what I will do? I will trust in him. And I just wanna say to you, brothers and sisters, because of all that Christ has done and because of all of what God has done, you are free to enjoy the life that God has given you. Eat, drink, enjoy your wife, enjoy your husband, enjoy your children, enjoy your job. It's not meaningless, it finds its purpose. Don't treat it like it's the end of the world because it's not. Everything has a shelf life in this world. But enjoying the good things of God never does. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter four, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving since it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Paul gets it. And you and I, as we seek wisdom and as we seek understanding, the world is then opened up to us. And how do we know this? Again, the depth of life and the depth of God's plan that literally teaches us there truly is a time for everything under the sun. And there is a time for us to eat and drink. A time for us to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. 
And so the reason why we do not believe in relativism is because Jesus had a reason to die. Not everything is okay. And the reason why we don't believe in Christian nihilism is because God has a purpose. And that purpose is that you and I can know Christ and to know peace with God through him. Yeah, it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul says, which teaches us the wisdom of God. For he has come, and he has said, learn from me, follow my ways, and in doing so, you will know me, and you will know God, and you will not just have life. Remember what Jesus says in John 8? You will have life abundantly. Brothers and sisters, because of what Jesus Christ has done, you and I just don't sit back and just marvel at the depth of life philosophically. But we no longer fear because we know who to fear. And we are no longer paralyzed because we know God is working all these things for good. And we no longer look miserly at life, but we enjoy it for what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is more than you and I could ever know. And so he took the bread and he offered it saying, this is my body given for you. Take it and eat. And this is my blood shed for you. Drink. And so now in light of all of the circumstances of our life, we come into the presence of God and we sing praise to who he is. We reflect upon his goodness, which helps order our circumstances, which helps prioritize the difficulties. And it gives us an opportunity for a moment to respond back with how good and great he is. So let us sing well of our good God today.